1: Boy, I'll tell you, more and more these days, I end up stuck in hotel rooms for unpredictable stretches of days because of canceled plane flights when I take the show on tour. So if I sound weird, it's because I'm recording on a tiny device in a Marriott in Indianapolis. Anyway, on this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Pete Brown.
2: Sometimes I think, I'll just let a little pee-pee out now. (laughs) Just to take the edge off.
1: <laughs> that and more. But first no one really has time to go to the post office. We're all too busy, but Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. You simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail's ready, just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in the mailbox. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Now, mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters no wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use stamps.com and right now risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and, and there's donkey yeah. <laughs> donkey he uses Stamps.com and he loves it. And right now, risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in risk. That's Stamps.com, enter risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Roy Eldridge behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Hard Knocks. Uh, some funny and some frightening. Life lessons learned the hard way. Now, in a little bit, we're going to have a real treat. If you recall, there are six stories in the Risk book that have never been played on the podcast before. We've been holding on to these six stories that we love so much for, for so long. But today, we're finally going to release one of them. The amazing Walter Zimmerman shared his story, the one that we call Asking and Telling, at the Bell House in Brooklyn a few years back. But before that, we're going to hear one of the stories that was shared at our recent show in Cincinnati, Ohio. Pete Brown produces a creative nonfiction podcast called Pete Brown Says. It's wherever you get your podcasts, and he's on all social media platforms, at Pete Brown Says. Here's Pete now, with a story we call Holdin' It.
2: So, I'm six years old, and it seems to me that I spend most of my life sitting on the bench outside the dressing rooms at TJ Maxx. (laughs) On occasion, my mom's hand comes out from the curtain holding a skirt or a blouse, and she shouts, Go find this in a medium. That's my job. I'm the youngest child, I'm the youngest of four, and I have three older sisters. So most of my childhood is being taken along with them on these shopping, excursions, running errands. I have to sit in the way, way back of the station wagon. A third-row seat faces backwards. It keeps me in a constant state of nausea. (laughs) (laughs) My mom, interestingly enough, was also a youngest child, also had all-sisters. And I think between her being raised with all-sisters and then having my three sisters to deal with, I think it's fair to say that by the time I come along she is ill-prepared for what little boys bring to your life. She's not prepared for how messy we are, certainly not prepared for how jumpy we are, but most of all, she is not prepared for how much little boys have to pee. (laughs) Because little boys have to pee all the time. It's kind of their thing. So we'd be driving on a shopping excursion. I'd be in the way, way back. I'm going to be, Mom, i got to go to the bathroom. And she'd just shout back, You can hold it till we get home and I'd try and hold it, I would, and then I'd be like, Mom, I really gotta go. And she'd say, just think about the desert. (laughs) So I'd be sitting back there with my legs crossed thinking about the desert. Mom, one time she tells me in a fit of irritation, she tells me that she didn't use the restrooms in all four years of high school because she thought they were gross and she was that good at holding it till she got home. (laughs) It's a weird thing to tell a (laughs) six-year-old. But it does the trick. I legitimately become ashamed if I have to tell her I have to go to the bathroom. So I endeavor to do everything I can not to do that. I'll cross my legs. I hold my breath. It feels like my eyes bug out sometimes. And sometimes I think, I'll just let a little pee-pee out now. (laughs) Just to take the edge off. (laughs) And then I'll cover up the wet spot with my hand until it dries. I don't have to tell you, this is a terrible strategy. (laughs) Not only because of the smell, but, I mean, once you break the seal, that dam's going to (laughs) burst. And this happens to me the next year. I'm seven years old. I'm at T-Ball. Now, in the 70s, parents didn't go to their kids' sporting events like they do now, and certainly mine didn't. So the deal was, my mom would sign me up for these things, but I was on my own getting there and back. So I'd ridden my bike to (laughs) T-Ball, About the second inning, I have to go to the bathroom. There's no facilities near this field, and I don't want to come out of the game. I don't want to bother the coach. I don't want to make somebody take me somewhere to go to the bathroom, so I just decide I can hold it, and I'm holding it as best I can, but finally, I'm just kind of sitting on the bench, rocking back and forth like this, thinking about the desert.
3: <laughs>
2: My head's not in the game, and just as I think, all right, I'm going to just tell the coach I got to go. I can't make it through the game. He looks down the bench and calls my name and says, You're up. Shit. <laughs> so I take my bat, I step up to the tee. I'm a pretty kick-ass t ball player, by the way. I step up to the tee. Now, at this time in my life, when I got my batting stance, I did this little thing that I'd seen Dwayne Kuiper do on TV, and that's to kind of wiggle your bottom to get into the stance. But this just makes everything worse. And I just hold my breath, I take a mighty, mighty swing on that ball, and with my first step down to first base, the dam bursts. What do you do in this moment? Appeal to the umpire? Talk to the coach? I just run faster. I get down that line faster than I ever have before or since as this giant wet spot's forming on the front of my pants. I hit the bag, I'm safe. And I continue into shallow right field, and up around the fence to the tree where my bike is parked. I hop on my bike and I pedal straight for home, hearing my coach shout, "Where are you going?" as I do. I'm not sure what happens after this. I assume the coach has got in touch with my parents. They probably had to put in a pinch runner now that I think about it. But after the T-ball incident, my mom takes me to the doctor to figure out what's wrong with me. Spent a pleasant day being tested, having my urine tested, having conversations with the doctor and the nurses about how often I pee. And finally, the doctor looks up at my mom and says, there's nothing wrong with him, he's just a little boy. (laughs) Little boys have to pee all the time, it's kind of their thing. (laughs) And my mom, she crosses her arms, she's having none of this, and she proceeds to tell the doctor that she didn't use the restroom in all four years of high school <laughs> because she was that good at holding it. And she adds this fascinating detail this time. She says, if there were competitions for such things, surely she would be a champion.
3: <laughs>
2: my mom, world champion of holding it. <laughs> now, I'm not, I'm not trying to throw my mom under the bus. I'm not. She's passed away. I'm a parent now. We all have blind spots. I get it. I do. But I wanted to lay the foundation for what happens to me when I'm in third grade. Nine years old. Too old, in case you're wondering, to be having accidents. I go to a small Catholic school, the kind where you're with the same 30 or 40 kids from first through eighth grade. In third grade, my teacher is Mrs. D. She's one of those teachers in the autumn of her career, or possibly the winter of her career, she just hates kids. Mrs. D would do stuff like she'd pass out a worksheet and she'd say, do this in silence and no one bother me till the bell rings. And then she'd go to her desk and just hold her head in her hands like this. <laughs> and this is what went down the day in question. She passed out a worksheet, math, multiplication as I recall, told us to do it in silence, don't bother her until the bell rings. And right away I know I'm in trouble because I've got to go to the bathroom. But all right, I've trained for this. I can hold it. (laughs) So I'm holding it for a while. I end up crossing my legs in my seat. I'm not doing the worksheet at all. I'm thinking about the desert. (laughs) Finally, I'm like, I got to tell her. I got to go. So I raise my hand. Now, Mrs. D has her head in her hands. She's not looking up. But like an idiot, I do this for three or four minutes (laughs) before I finally start going, oh, 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 oh. People of my generation call that the horse shack, by the way. <laughs> so I'm horse shacking it, oh, oh, and Mrs. D, without looking up, she says, I am not calling on anyone, do your worksheet. And I feel hope rush out of my body, like the, getting the wind knock out of you at this point. Because I know I'm not going to make it. I sniff, I think I'm starting to tear up. I lean forward in my seat and I think, well, I'll just let a little pee-pee out now. And I close my eyes and I just let it all go. (sighs) Thankfully, it's a quiet pee. It rolls down my pants, begins puddling under my chair. But there's a lot of it. I'm in some trouble, some dire straits here. The girl who sits next to me, Jennifer B., she taps me on the shoulder and she says, Why are you crying? And I look at her with desperation in my eyes and I just point (laughs) under my chair. And her face is burned into my memory, this progression from confusion to recognition to abject horror. (laughs) And I realize kids are going to start freaking out any minute now. So I get out of my chair and I kind of soggy bottom crab walk up to Mrs. D. She's sitting there like this. Without looking up, she says, Why are you out of your seat? And I lean in and I say, Because I've had an accident. This gets her attention. She stands up, she looks me over, she sees my desk, she points her crooked finger at me, and she says, Go clean that up and go see the principal. Yeah, shit was tough in the 70s. I think it's stuff like this that makes us resent millennials. Now, I'm a mess at this point, a total mess. I'm crying, I'm soaked on the front and the back. Everybody's looking at me. I don't know how to clean this up. I'm hoping the janitor shows up with that weird-smelling sawdust that he puts down when somebody throws up. So finally, I go to my coat locker, and I get out my lunch bag, and I dump out my lunch... And I use the brown paper bag and my napkin, which says Jesus loves you on it. (laughs) And I wipe up the pee as best I can, throw it out. I head to the principal's office where I sit in one of these orange molded plastic chairs until my mom gets to school with clean underwear and dry pants. I want to tell you what it's like when you're the kid who peed his pants in third grade, especially in a small school like this. It stains you. If you ever work with wood stain and you get some on your hands it, it never seems to come out and that's how this is even as you put days and weeks and months between the incident and yourself kids remember this isn't the thing that they're going to forget even if they do begin to forget that you peed your pants in third grade there's still a fundamental weakness that's associated with you and that they're tuned into so the last five years i spent at that school were very quiet ones And I think if you looked up my classmates today, most of them probably won't remember that I peed my pants in third grade, unless they've listened to this podcast. (laughs) But they will recall me as being quiet and reserved. But this is why I am so stoked in the best sense of that word when my parents decide that for high school I can switch to the public school in the next suburb over. So that when I start ninth grade, there's not a single kid from my grade school in my class. It's a complete and total do-over. And I vow to take advantage of it. I'm going to opposite my life. Where I was quiet, I will become loud. Where I was shy, I will be bold. Where I was a rule follower, I will become a risk taker. First day of ninth grade, marched into my homeroom, sat down. I turn around and I say to the kids sitting behind me, hey... Last night, everything in my house was stolen and replaced with an exact replica. Some of you are going to recognize this as a joke by the comedian Stephen Wright, which I had stolen. I thought it was hilarious. I'm not sure why I chose this to be the note I started my new life on. And the kid leans back in his chair, he crosses his arms, and he goes, You're a weird one. <laughs> But the cool thing was that didn't matter. He thought that was interesting, and he became my first friend on my first day in my new school, in my new life. And along the way, he picks up the nickname Chumley. It's what I call him to this day. And Chumley will tell you that as high school progresses each year, I grow increasingly loud and increasingly bold, and definitely increasingly risk takier. These are, I know, three core components of privilege. I acknowledge that. And by the time senior year comes around, the last day of senior year, we have to be at the school at 7.30 in the morning because we have to board buses for a half-hour ride across town for commencement practice. And for some reason, Chemley and I choose at 7 in the morning to drive to an empty field near the school, a place we called the Dead Grounds, where teenagers would hang out on weekends smoking weed and listening to Def Leppard. It's empty at 7 in the morning I don't know what I was expecting But in the space of about 15 minutes Chumley and I each beer bong 7 or 8 beers I, I lose count Why are we doing this? Good question I don't know I, I suspect we are trying to cement our reputations As outlaw ruffians of the western suburbs <laughs> We make a harrowing drive back to the school We're running late we sprint across the parking lot, we're the last two kids to get on the bus. And as soon as we sit down, I realize Chumley's in trouble. So he leans over, he goes, How long's this bus ride? I have to pee. And I say, Chumley, you can just hold it till we get there.
3: <laughs>
2: and about five minutes after that, he goes, Man, I really gotta go. And I say, Chumley, think about the desert. But a couple minutes after that, he leans over and he goes, I got to do it, man. And he looks up at me with desperation on his face. And I recognize this because this is the same face that I gave to Jennifer B. 10 years earlier. The universe is letting me relive an experience from my childhood, not only from a different point of view, but from a different place in the power structure. I have the high ground for the first time in my life. So what do I do with this gift? Do I... Maneuver my body so that no one can see Chumley pee, or do we strategize ways that this won't blow back on him? No, I don't do those things. I'm a privileged kid with eight beers in my belly. I'm literally drunk and drunk on power, and I start screaming, Oh my God, Chumley's peeing on the bus! Dear God, make it stop! He's peeing on the bus! Now, I have a son now who's a senior, but when he had started middle school, he came home one day and he said, Dad, what's a dick move? He had heard this in the hallway. He didn't know what it meant. I told him a very sanitized version of this story, but that's what it was. It was the ultimate dick move, not having your good buddies back in a time of great desperation. The reaction on the bus to my yelling is... I want to say delayed and it's delayed till the bus lurches into motion and this big puddle of Chumley's peas starts rolling to the back and every time it gets to a new seat the kids start screaming and then that night at commencement they announce Chumley's name he gets to walk across the stage get his diploma important moment in his life and I and all the other boys salute him by going psst I'm sorry about that, Chumley. I've often thought if I got another do-over in life, this is where I would choose to use it. Now, I mentioned my son's a senior. He's going to be walking across the stage and graduating. i just very quickly tell you before I go about his first day of school. It's a weird time in the days leading up to his first day of school. I was getting very irritated with very normal stuff. For example, I bought him a Spider-Man backpack at the store. It held it in my hands. It seemed the right size. But when I came home and put it on him, it looked huge. And I said to my wife, what the fuck's wrong with this backpack? (laughs) Dumb stuff like that. The morning of his first day of school, I'm getting him buckled in his car seat. My wife comes out of the house with the dog. She wants to bring the dog to the first day of school. And I say, why do you make everything so fucking complicated? And rightly so, she takes a step back and says, what the fuck's your problem? (laughs) Sometimes we swear in front of our kids. You're probably picking up on that. (laughs) But I don't know what my problem is. I don't know what it is. As I pull out of the driveway, I don't know what it is as we drive to school. I don't know what it is when we pull into the parking lot and the dog starts going crazy because there's little kids everywhere. It's not until I get out of the car and shut the door... And I turn and look, and I see my son in his giant Spider-Man backpack reaching up for his mother's hand to go into the first day of school, and it hits me that I've been derelict in my duty as his dad, and I jog up to him. I get down on his level. I say, hey, kiddo, I got to tell you something before you go in there, okay? He's like, okay, and it kind of pours out of me. I go, If you have to go to the bathroom and the teacher's not calling on you, just get up and go to the bathroom. It's more important that you get to the bathroom than you get called on. You will not get in trouble if you have to go to the bathroom and you just go, okay? You don't need permission. If you got to go, just go to the bathroom. So he kind of nods with big eyes, and I'm not done. If another kid has to go to the bathroom, you have that kid's back, all right? Get up and help him get to the bathroom. Find an adult. Find someone to help him. It's more important that you get to the bathroom. That's the most important thing. And then I say, do you understand? And he just nods. And I say, do you have any questions? I read this in a parenting book, by the way. It helps check for understanding. Do you have any questions? And I thought a lot in my life about what he says next. Because he looks up thoughtfully and then he says, Dad, I'm four. (laughs) Now I assume when you're that age, the main thing that adults ask you is how old are you? And perhaps he thought by giving me this information, it would make me go away. (laughs) But it's the perfect thing for me to hear because it yanks me out of my anxiety. It pulls me out of my own past where I'd been living right here into this present moment, this beautiful fall morning, my son, his giant Spider-Man backpack, my wife, the dog. (laughs) So I pull him in close for a hug, and as I do, I, I just tell him in his ear, I say, yeah, kiddo, you're four years old, and you are awesome, and you are amazing, and you can pee wherever and whenever you want. (laughs) Now let's go get them. Thank you.
4: My story starts in may nineteen sixty seven. I was a twenty year old enlistee in the United States Air Force. I was a computer operator, and I had just been given a one year tour of duty at the remote naval air station in Keplavik, Iceland. Now, behind me in the United States, Aretha Franklin was just thinking about some re-re-re-respect re just a little bit. And the three volumes of The Lord of the Rings were finally available in paperback. <laughs> Far away and below the equator, thousands of miles away, 500,000 Americans in uniform were fighting in the jungles of Vietnam. And there I stood... 20-year-old skinny guy in a funny blue uniform in the doorway of the barracks room in Iceland. Now, I have to tell you that the barracks were not like the ones you see in the movies where everybody has beds spread out for miles. They were individual rooms like college dorms. This is important for you to know. So I'm standing there, jet-lagged, with my big duffel bag stuffed with my uniforms and my cheap little green suitcase stuffed with my art supplies, watching my new roommate's tape aluminum foil to the inside of the windows. I didn't think this was going to pass inspection, but they told me that in May in Iceland, the sun stops going below the horizon and it gets too light at night to be able to sleep. Well, you learn something new every day, and I started to unpack my underwear and put it away in the military fashion. But, you know, they weren't the only ones who were blocking things out at that moment. I had been in the Air Force for three years, and I had learned that the sex games that I'd been playing with my high school buddies meant way more to me than they ever had to them. And here I was, I'm on a remote military station with young marines and sailors and fellow airmen, all in the peak of health, all with their hormones at full mast, (laughs) and you know, I mean, my roommates may have been blocking some things out and I thought I had some protection, but I might as well have been covered in saran wrap for all of my fellow airmen. They saw right through me. They propositioned me right and left. It was really tempting, but I was terrified. I mean, we were living under the uniform code of military justice at the time, and if you were considered feminine, you were in trouble. Now, I had it in my mind that if an officer thought I was queer, he could take me out behind the barracks and shoot me in the head, no questions asked. Now, As if to sort of underscore what I was dealing with, just shortly after I got to Iceland, we heard a report from a fellow air base in Greenland, Thule Air Force Base. Two airmen there had been found having sex with each other. One of them, rather than face disciplinary action, walked off the end of a runway into the North Sea. His partner was sent to Iceland temporarily to be processed and then sent back to the United States for a dishonorable discharge. I still remember his waxen face. He never met anybody's gaze. He ate all the few meals he had there alone. I still feel guilty that I never said hello to him, but I was afraid of guilt by association. So, I was 20 years old, a computer operator. I kept my focus on my punch cards, and I put out those little reports about how many rolls of toilet paper there were and how many cans of green beans, and life went on. But seasons change and the aluminum foil came down and I sort of began to need some real kind of human contact. One weekend I was in the enlisted men's club getting a cheeseburger and watching some television and I saw a sailor sitting at a table by himself with some colored pencils and a piece of paper and he was working steadily away and I mentioned my art supply. So I thought, well, this is sort of interesting. So I went over and asked him what he was doing and he looked up at me. And he had this thick, black, glistening hair, and these bright, bright blue eyes like an Alaskan husky. And this innocent but intelligent look on his face. And I was, oh, I'm just drawing some pictures to send home to my mom in Braintree. I'm Paul. I was thunderstruck. I just kind of plunked myself down and ate my cheeseburger and watched him draw. All the other sailors there and the Marines were starting to get drunk and getting ready to fight each other like they always did on the weekends, so I suggested that we go back to my room where we could talk, it's more quiet. He said, that was okay. So we went back and we got there and I lay down on my bunk and he sat down on a chair at the foot of the bed. You know, I don't really remember what we were talking about. What I remember is that we stopped talking and we just started to stare at each other. We were staring at each other without flinching. We were staring at each other without pause, so openly, so honestly, and I could feel this strange energy coming up in the room. I mean, I'd never felt anything like that in my life. I, I didn't know what it meant, but it was clearly palpable. And I, I don't know what happened. I mean, maybe somebody made a noise in the hall, and we both kind of woke up. We had to get back to the barracks, and I was left there to wonder, was it, Did that just really happen? And then we kept kind of meeting as if by accident, but every single time we always ended up back in my room, me on the bed, him on the chair, staring at each other as this room filled with some kind of mysterious power that I couldn't grasp. Now, at about the same time, I was in the office one day, I think it was lunchtime because nobody else was there and I was doing one of my reports about the toilet paper and the green beans and I decided I needed a drink of water, went around the corner and there leaning against the wall, writhing as though in some kind of hypnotic trance, was a sailor in uniform with his eyes sort of unfocused and his hands in his crotch massaging the biggest erection I had ever seen (laughs) trapped in a pair of trousers. This dark blue navy material holding this strange thing he was moving back and forth. <laughs> it was like that. I mean, what do you do? I mean, guy, the uniform code of military justice is taped on the wall 15 feet away and you're massaging your crotch in public? Please go on. <laughs> So, I mean, I had to pull myself away. I had to get my drink of water. I took a long time getting back to my desk, and then I realized I was really dying of thirst. (laughs) So I went right back around the corner, and I just stood there and watched. It was wonderful. (laughs) And then he sort of realized that he had an audience, and he pulled himself away from the wall, looked me right in the eye, and walked into the men's room. And I followed him like the best puppy in obedience school. Oh, yes, I did. And he marched right up to the urinal and he undid the buttons on his bell-bottoms and flapped them out and out sprang the most beautiful dick I had ever, ever seen. It was thick. It was plump. It was the dick Michelangelo would have sculpted if the Pope had given him permission. (laughs) And he knew it. He knew it. He was fondling this thing. He was caressing it. He was giving it all the attention it wanted. And I was dancing around like the floor was on fire. And I, I didn't know what to do, but I knew I wanted to do something. And then he gave kind of little jerk to his hips, and he sprayed himself all over the urinal. I never knew that I could be so jealous of a piece of porcelain. And then he seemed to calm right down, and he kind of wiped himself up and stuffed himself away, and he said, "Hey, yeah." My name's Steve, I'm gonna be in the showers of the base gym uh, Saturday at two. See you there. (laughs) At about one fifty-five, my clothes were checked into a little wire basket with a number on. I had the little number around my ankle and I walked into this huge white steam filled room full of showers and there he was, naked wet, soaping himself up and starting to get an erection. And in a nanosecond, we were together, we were twined around each other like jungle vines. We were twisting and turning and rubbing against each other. No kissing, no affection, nothing above the neck, all simply skin and groin. It was pretty wonderful. (laughs) And then we heard this pat, 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 and here comes some guy taking a legitimate shower. So we pulled each other apart. I mean, we, we, like, he stood over there, and I stood over there, and I stood right up next to the wall trying to hide our excitement as though anybody would be fooled by this. And this guy finished up his shower, and then we were, bam, right against each other, grinding away, and then pat, 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 some more bare feet, another guy taking a shower. And he says to me, let's go back to my room. So... In record time, we were dried, dressed, and across base in his second floor barracks room, and he was reaching up to do a little hook and eye at the very top of the door. This is not military issue, but at least the Navy understood that a man sometimes needs his privacy. We stripped off as fast as we could, and suddenly I had that Michelangelo dick in my mouth. Oh, my God. It was wonderful. It was so satisfying. I felt so useful. I mean, if I could only do for him what I couldn't do for everyone else. I mean, you you try to be a good Christian somehow. And it was splendid. I, mean, I didn't care what the uniform, Court of Military Justice had said. There's nothing feminine about two guys with raging hard-ons, believe me. <laughs> and so I was having a great, great time, but then he pushed me away. I said, like, what am I, have I forgotten? Am I doing something wrong? But he, no, no, he wanted to return the favor. <laughs> I didn't expect that, but yeah, he went down on me but he had a sort of a strange attitude about it. He seemed sort of angry or resentful, like he was being forced to do something against his will, but it still felt fabulous. So I let him have his turn, and then we switched off back and forth, giving each other as much pleasure as we possibly could as long as we could, but not too long so he wouldn't want to be discovered. And then it was my turn, and I knew he was about to go over the top, and I was doing everything I could to give him the best orgasm in his life. And once again, he pushed me back. Not in your mouth. I don't want to live like that. And then I watched him spurt all over a t-shirt on the bed. <laughs> I was shocked. I mean, he might as well have punched me in the face. But it was his room, it was his deck, so I just sort of followed his example. But I, I mean, I was really disappointed. I mean, that orgasm was the reason I was there. I was there because, for me, there is something almost sacred about that male-to-male communication, that inimitable intimacy when two men are sharing their essences. Besides, it's really mostly just protein and fructose anyway. I knew that. I knew that when I was 13. I guess, well, okay, I got dressed and I said I'll see you around and went back to the barracks. And uh, two days later, so I didn't want to seem too eager, I went to the big main chow hall and there he was with his tray of reconstituted scrambled eggs and his bad coffee. I said, hey, Steve, how are you? And he looked right through me like I was made of ozone. Brushed past me, sat down at a table with some other sailors with his back to me. Well, my friend Paul with the blue eyes and black hair and the pictures for his mom he was on leave. And this rejection from Steve sent me plunging into a profound depression. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. One morning I passed out in the latrine. I went to the base doctor. I gave my symptoms without a sex. <laughs> and they sent me to the Air Force Hospital in Wiesbaden, Germany, where I stayed for three weeks and I was sent back to Iceland telling me that all of my problems were existential. When I got back there, Steve was there still... I missed Mr. rose unto him, but blue-eyed, black-haired Paul was gone. I couldn't find him anywhere. I went to all the places we used to hang out. I didn't know if he was in the hospital, if he'd been reassigned. I didn't know where his barracks was. I didn't know where he worked. I was afraid to ask. I was afraid to start going and looking for him because I was afraid that it would raise suspicions. I remembered that runway in Greenland. I didn't want to jeopardize myself or him. So in what little wisdom I had at the time, I decided that our safety was more important than that power that was in that room as we sat there staring at each other. So I finished out my enlistment, I got my honorable discharge, got my GI Bill, went to college. But you know, those two little events in Iceland really made a difference in my life. I learned there that although, try as I might, simple grappling with another guy, simple physical sexual contact, pretty gratifying, but not enough. And as much as I appreciated Stephen's gorgeous dick, what I really wanted, what I was really looking for was that vibrational power that was in the room when I was with Paul. That sense of something incredible happening for me with a man, I I never saw his elbows, I never saw his knees, I never smelled his hair. Well you know, I have a husband now, I have been together with him for over 30 years. We got married in California the first time it was legal. And there's really nothing wrong with my life that a live-in housekeeper with OCD wouldn't help. (laughs) But I still have to admit, I think about that room and that powerful feeling that I couldn't understand. I still think about Paul from Braintree, Massachusetts, even though he seems to have disappeared from the face of the earth. And all I want to know, Paul, did you feel the same thing too? Thank you.
1: This is Risk. This is Aretha Franklin behind me now. And we just heard from the wonderful Walter Zimmerman. You can find Walter on Facebook. You know, that story is in the Risk book. If you have never purchased the Risk book or gotten copies for friends. You gotta get on it. It is so loaded with amazing stories. Five others that you've never heard on the podcast before. Stories from very well-known people and some of our favorite classics. There's interviews. There's an introduction that gives the history of risk. It's really wonderful. It's at the Risk Book dot com or Amazon or wherever else books are sold. And before Walter Zimmerman, we heard a little interstitial from our episode editor Jeff Barr, something or other about being. <laughs> Our final story on this week's episode is another one that was shared at our fabulous Cincinnati show. Oh my gosh, Wanda Bowser had never done anything like this before. She was a fan of the podcast who reached out to us when we said we needed pitches. And man, oh man, did she bring it. The audience just loved her. Here she is now. This is Wanda Bowser with a story we call... Black Girl Magic.
5: Just feel good. Like I can say let it all hang out. Every last fiddle.
6: You two should have sex while I watch. I'm talking to my friend, Brittany, and she has just proposed that Nathan, another one of our friends, who's in my dorm room with us at this moment, and I sleep together for her viewing pleasure. It's January 2003, a cold night in the middle of the week. We're all 18-year-old freshmen, and we've just returned back to campus from winter break. We have absolutely nothing better to do but make questionable choices. So Nathan and I look at her with bewilderment. I mean, the shocking part isn't that she wants to watch us hooking up. I mean, this is typical Britney. She is wild and carefree and sexually experimentative, and she's nosy as fuck. <laughs> she, uh, she enjoys a good scandal. She loves gossip, and she's the bad influence friend that my parents would have never let me have in high school. We're more surprised because we'd never really considered each other bedmates. I mean, Nathan was a member of our friend group. We walked to class together. We ate lunch in the cafeteria. We would watch movies in his room because he had the best TV. But I'd never given him the vibe that I was interested in him, and he'd never given me the vibe that he was interested in me. I didn't have a type back then, but I don't think he would have been it. I mean, he was this (laughs) country boy. He chewed tobacco. He carried a bottle that he would spit in. Yeah, it's pretty nasty <laughs> He drove a pickup truck And he blared country music Again, I didn't have a type But he wouldn't have been it So Nathan laughs her off Whatever, Brittany And I ask, why would we even do that? And Brittany says Nathan, you've never seen a black girl naked And you told me you were curious And Wanda, you're a virgin And you told me you don't want to be one anymore Okay let me back it up. I am a virgin in this moment, but it's not for lack of trying. I, Brittany knows about the two failed attempts to lose this virginity my fall semester. And if I'd had my say in it, I would not have even come to college a virgin. The small town that I grew up in in the South was not conducive to any fantasies of being a teenage whore that I may have had. <laughs> it was a small town, not a lot of diversity, Uh, Very few other black people there. And although black people will tell you we're not all related, and we are not all related, in this town, we were all related. (laughs) My dad was always saying, oh, we're related to the Tharps and the Porters. Oh, oh, the Jenkins boy, yeah, that's your cousin too. So even though this is the South, cousin fucking is not an option (laughs) that I want to explore. No thank you. So that left me with white guys. And although I had several unrequited crushes on the little white boys that I went to school with, interracial dating was still very taboo. And we're not talking 50s and 60s, we're talking late 90s, early 2000s, but this is Tennessee, so <laughs> put that there. Of course, you had your white girls that would date black guys to piss off their dads, but it just wasn't the norm. It wasn't anything that you saw on a regular basis. We even had superlatives in high school, we had Mr. and Miss. BCHS, and we had Mr. and Miss Black BCHS. And when I asked, what's the differentiation for, the faculty advisor told me, well, what if Mr. BCHS was black and Miss BCHS was white? We couldn't have that. That wouldn't do. Also, I was getting these underlying messages that black girls were just not as desirable as white girls. You very much wanted to have good hair. You wanted to have that long, silky hair that people could run their hands through that was... Not the kinky curls that are indicative of a little black girl's hair. It was a total sin to have naps. Oh, the horror. You know, our lips were too big, and our thighs were too thick, and our asses were too fat. Looking like a Kardashian was not in then. And now people pay good money for all that shit. (laughs) Back in my room, I am nervous, and I'm really embarrassed to be put on the spot like this. Nathan is looking sheepish, but he's looking at me like, if you say yes, I'll say yes. And why wouldn't he say yes? He's an 18-year-old boy and he's been handed this Playboy fantasy on a platter. I mean, of course he's gonna say yes. He's probably hoping it's gonna turn into a fucking threesome. Although I'm nervous, I kinda start to consider it. I mean, I haven't considered him an option before, but now that I'm getting a good look at him, he's got this John Mayer thing going on. And I fucking (laughs) love John Mayer back then. (laughs) He was tall. He had this like floppy hair. He had these mischievous eyes. And I really do want to have sex. I want to know, what is the fuss about? So the spirit of what the fuck enters my body, and it feels like danger and adventure and the spirit of getting into some shit I'm not supposed to be getting into. And I say, yeah, okay, let's do it. At this point in my life, I don't have the foresight to realize that this will not be the only opportunity I have in life to have sex. <laughs> I think, okay, I've already failed at this twice. I don't ever fail at anything. So the overachiever in me is already pissed off about that. And I honestly, I don't feel confident enough that I could have set something like this up on my own. So I'm thinking, I need to do this now, and I don't really care what it looks like. So they are shocked that goody two-shoes, bookworm Wanda is doing it, but God damn it, we're doing it. So Nathan and I go to our individual corners of the room, like boxers in a ring and disrobe. <laughs> the lights get turned off except for a lamp because I don't know anything about sex, but you have got to have mood lighting. <laughs> I get on my tiny twin-size dorm bed, and he clambers on top of me, And Brittany pulls up a chair to watch this show. (laughs) And she's got this anxious energy about her as if she cannot believe that this random thought that popped into her head that she said out loud is actually about to go down. (laughs) I'm laying there, and the the what-the-fuck bravado that I had earlier, in this moment, I'm scared. Like, I don't know what's about to happen. And I can't believe that the three of us are in this position based on me saying yes. And this ball started rolling so fast down the hill, I don't know that I can say no. He's a little awkward, but he's excited. There's no foreplay, there's no kissing. He looks at me and he says, is this okay? I look up at him and I say, it's now or never. He pushes his way inside of me forcefully, and it fucking hurts. <laughs> it burns like a motherfucker. And if you don't take anything away from my story, like if you go to sleep in the middle of it, remember this, ladies and gentlemen. Lubricate, lubricate, lubricate. You cannot have enough lube, because it should not have hurt as bad as it did. So I'm laying there like a corpse with my legs wrapped around his waist, and my fingernails are digging into his shoulder, and I'm whimpering like a dying animal, and he's unrhythmically thrusting on top of me like a fish trying to get back into the water. And Brittany just gets up and leaves the room. Uh, (laughs) If I, was, if I could have, I would have got up and left the room. <laughs> when he's finished, I run to the bathroom, and when I come out, he's left. The next day, the pain between my legs reminds me that I'm a woman now. <laughs> like I had sex, and even though it wasn't the greatest, I want to do it again. I can kind of see what people do this for. So that weekend, Nathan calls me, and we hang out in his room alone for the first time. We hook up again. And without an audience this time, he is so much better. But beyond becoming casual hookup partners, we do start to get closer with each other. He's a cuddler, and so we spend nights hunkered under his blanket, and he loves when I twirl his hair around. And I love twirling his hair around, so (laughs) I run my fingers through his smooth, silky hair. And, I mean, we talk about our insecurities and our vulnerabilities, and we get to know each other. I mean, we shower together, and he washes my back and gives me forehead kisses he lets me download all kinds of illegal music onto his desktop from LimeWire and Kazaa, And I'm thinking, if he's willing to risk federal prison time for my digital piracy, this must be fucking love. I mean, I've never experienced any kind of attention like that. And so for someone that hasn't had that kind of attention, it feels real. It feels like something that I want to keep. So, I start to notice that he only calls me when his roommate's out of town. I see him out with his mom, and he ushers her the other way as if he does not want us to meet. And when we're hanging out with our group of friends, he doesn't treat me any differently than he ever has before. It's like he doesn't want them to know. But because of the care that he showed me privately, I convinced myself that none of these things were important. I convinced myself that it didn't bother me. So a few weeks into my relationship with Nathan, the shrill ring of the phone interrupts what I'm doing. It's Brittany on the line. And she says, Nathan and Laurel got into this huge fight. Now, Laurel is another person in our friend group. She dates black guys exclusively, and she really just doesn't give a fuck what you think. And she and Nathan have a hate hate relationship. They only tolerate each other because they're both in this collective that we've all formed. I don't really know what this has to do with me, but I know how Brittany is about her gossip, and I know she's just wanting to you know, talk cash shit. So I'm like, okay, well, what happened? What's going on? She says, well, girl, Nathan called Laurel a nigger lover. I feel like I've been kicked in the stomach. I mean, my heart drops to my chest, and I feel like I'm being flushed down the toilet. And I start that ugly cry where you're hyperventilating between every word. (laughs) I'm like, I cannot comprehend how this guy that I cared about and how I thought cares about me could use such a derogatory, demeaning word to describe people that look like me. And I mean, that fucking word, that disgusting word, nigger. It reminds me of black bodies, hanging from trees in a lynching. And it reminds me of the KKK terrorizing people with burning crosses. And it reminds me of the time in 8th grade when Jennifer Dominguez, not her real name, walks up to me after we watch Roots in the 8th grade and says, you know, my family probably owns your family. It's a reminder that no matter the content of my character, I am considered less than a person because of my skin color. And he had lobbied that word at her, nigger lover, as an insult, as if by loving a black person, she had something that she needed to be ashamed of. After that, I avoid Nathan. I'm sad it's over and I miss him, but I am so angry. We all avoid him. He's become this social pariah. None of us want anything to do with him. He's excommunicated from the group. One night, I get a knock on my door and I open it and... It's Nathan, and he's standing there looking sad and pitiful, and my anger wants to slam the door in his face and say, fuck you, but that soft spot that I have in my heart for him that had developed over all this intimacy that we had, it says, come in. So he comes in the room, and he sits on the bed, and we're quiet, and I break the silence, and I say, how could you say that word, When you're with me all the time, what does any of this mean to you? He says, I'm sorry if you're offended. I mean, it's not like I even consider you a real black person. Uh, You knew that we started this on a dare. And I realize he doesn't look ashamed that he said the word. He looks annoyed that we have ostracized him and that he is suffering consequences for his actions. But... In my mind, I'm also thinking, this is how these relationships go, right? White guy, black girl. I'm supposed to be a secret. It would be mortifying to to him if anybody knew about me. I mean, I don't want to cause trouble in his life. I don't want him to have to explain to people why we're different colors. I mean, I know that in this society, it's not accepted. What did I expect? And I accept his fuckboy apologies, and... I continue hooking up with him. It's not just that i missed him and what I thought we had, but it's that validation of being wanted. It's when you've gone your whole life without being seen and you feel like somebody sees you, you don't want to be invisible again. But this time it's different. I'm still willing to be all in, but it's not the same. We hook up, he gets up, he leaves. There's no more you know, showers and backwashing and forehead kisses. And as winter turns to spring and the weather gets warmer and warmer, he starts to distance himself until one day I see him on campus. And it's one of those bright blue days and, you know, birds are chirping and bees are buzzing. And he's holding hands with a girl and he lets go of her hand and puts his arm around her shoulder and brings her in closer and he kisses her on the forehead. And... She's white. Of course she is. She's acceptable. They can be seen out in public together. She's not a nigger, so she doesn't have to be a secret. And I see this scene before me that looks like a fucking Valtrex commercial right before they tell you they have herpes. I don't think he had herpes. I'm not going to put that on I don't think he had herpes. But they look like the happy white couple in the Valtrex commercial. And I feel disappointed and hurt, but I also, most importantly, feel relief because... I know where I stand with him now, and it's never been clearer than it is. After the end of this semester, Nathan, he drops out of school, and I don't talk to him again. For years, I dealt with a lot of humiliation and shame. This was a hard story for me to talk about because it's hard to process these emotions. It's not just that I slept with a guy, I found out he was a bigot, I kept sleeping with him, and then he fucking dumped me. It's because I had internalized racist ideas that I grew up with And within that context, I had allowed myself to be okay with disrespected I had considered myself less than human because of my skin color Nothing cataclysmic has really moved to change those feelings However, as society has changed and as I've lived and I've evolved And as black women have started to embrace the magic that is inside of us as institutions are called out on systemic racism and as individuals are called out on their outright racism and as the collective has grown to realize that all love is valid despite the couple's gender or race, I've realized that I had a lot of shit I needed to unpack and leave it in the past because it did not serve me in the present and I goddamn sure was not carrying it to my future. A few years ago, I saw where Nathan had commented on a mutual friend's Facebook post. And I hover my mouse over his profile, and I hover over the little button that says message. And I want to send him a message. I want to tell him, I'm not a fetish. I'm not a cross-off on your sexual bucket list. I am more than the ebony category on Pornhub. I'm a person. I'm a human fucking being, and I am equal to you, and I deserve to be treated like that. And my hope is that he will apologize to me because I want to forgive him. At the end of the day, I don't send that message because I can't find the worth in doing that. For all I care, he can fuck off. I don't care. I don't forgive. I forget. And the person that I need to apologize to and show grace and compassion to is that 18-year-old girl in a dorm room who was making decisions with a limited frame of reference for how amazing and worthy that we really were. You know, we deserve better than and these days we have better. We have love, we are seen, we have dignity, we have self-respect, and most importantly, we're not falling for the bullshit messages we get about who we are or what the fuck we deserve. Thank you. <laughs>
7: For you I Wish Nothing but The best For you both I know the version Of me She perverted like me Would she go down on you In a theater Does she speak eloquently And would she Have your baby I'm sure she'd make our excellence mother Cause the love that you gave that we made was unable to make it enough for you to be open wide No And every time you speak her name She know how you told me to hold me Until you died, till you died But you're still alive And I'm here To remind
1: That is all for this week's episode. This is Alanis Morissette behind me now. And we just heard from Wanda Bowser. Folks, listen, we have a lot of great shows coming up, a lot of great live shows, and we need you to pitch us for those shows, and we need you to come on out to those shows so find us at risk-show.com slash submissions and pitch us your story and tell your friends to pitch us their stories as well and if you want to see risk live information about where we're appearing next is always at risk-show.com slash tour Don't forget to look up our school as well, where we teach storytelling in all kinds of ways to people all over the world at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. months back, we asked you guys if you could help us get to over $5,000 per month in donations on Patreon. That's right, I said Patreon, he said. And if you'd help us reach that goal by thanksgiving we'd make a song to thank you for the help and you totally did you totally did and now we get over $5,000 a month on patreon from you so thank you so much everybody for you we're Bringing back the sound of me having orgasms because stamps.com might have been kind of annoyed by the orgasms, but Patreon won't care because this isn't an ad for them and they probably won't hear it anyway. <laughs> oh, it's orgasm sounds, yes, it's orgasm sounds because that's how we feel about you and your support on Patreon. <laughs> Yes, Patreon.
5: Patreon.
3: Patreon.
1: And now there's like some flutes and violins. Probably not. Probably not actually flutes. I don't think. Anyway, I promise
3: it'll be over. It's over. It's over.